I'd been a devoted runner for most of my life. I began running in earnest when I left the military in late 1979. I didn't run marathons, but I was devoted to three or four miles a day. Soon, I noticed something odd. At about the two-mile mark in my run, a spot on my right leg went completely numb. It was just above my knee and only about an inch in diameter. With a pin, I could define its edges as perfectly round. Less than an hour after my run, the sensation returned. I mentioned it to my doctor who blew it off, and he suggested I do the same. So I dubbed it my numb spot and never gave it a second thought. That was until October 22, 2012, when a fall landed me in an emergency room. An x-ray of my leg above the knee discovered an anomalous bit of metal. The radiologist was sure it was a man-made object about the size of a fingernail with two wires attached. He pointed out it resembled an RIFD compute device. He also noticed a collection of foreign objects below in my calf muscle. He insisted on examining my leg for scar tissue. He said the only way these objects could become embedded in my leg would have required an incision. He said, it's impossible to breach the integrity of the skin without leaving a scar. There is no scar. I asked, doctor, how often do you find a foreign body underneath the skin without a corresponding scar? He thought for a moment. Never, he replied. I've been a radiologist for 23 years, and I've never seen it before. He said it was disturbing. Are you ready for this? Hello, hello, and welcome to this mini pod of the Pinkie Pod. Pa-pow! This one's all about alien abduction, my dears. And this first story is Terry Lovelace in his own words. And I'm reading from whatsupwithufos.com, but there's also terrylovelace.com. Now, where were we? Ah, yes. A day or two later, I made the connection. The foreign object in my knee lay just below my numb spot. In early 2013, the nightmares returned and reopened a chapter of my life I had hoped had ended in 1978. I had no intention of ever disclosing what happened to my friend and I back in 1977. September of 2017, I was a guest speaker at a UFO event in Houston. It was my first public appearance and opportunity to speak candidly on the topic of alien abduction. This was the time when I decided to write a book. It's an important topic. We deserve to be informed and not misled. I fear we've been desensitized about the UFO phenomena by the media, especially the motion picture industry. Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released in November 1977, my experience happened in June that same year. Now, 
YouTube provides a flood of valid information mixed with confabulation and deception. Know the truth. Aliens really exist, and some live and walk among us without so much as a second look. There are probably many species from different worlds or different dimensions here on Earth today. Some aliens may actually be our benign space brothers, as some have claimed, here to join hands and walk mankind into a new era of peace and higher consciousness. Maybe so, but not the ones we met. The beings we met were monsters. They kidnap people and subject them to terror and brutality in pursuit of their agenda. They are 100% purpose-driven and void of empathy for human or animal suffering. We are their lab rats. Once you're tagged as their specimen, you're tagged for a lifetime, like a wild animal on the Serengeti Plain. When I finished speaking, about a dozen people stayed and formed a queue to ask questions. Some folks just wanted to know a few more details, and a few others told me about their own abduction experiences. I noticed a young college student growing impatient for his turn. A few minutes later, he came forward and excitedly asked, How can I get them to take me? I was stunned. Were you not paying attention, I asked? I guess not. Look closely at the x-ray images. What makes these images remarkable is the absence of scar tissue over or near the objects. If you're curious about my abduction and what qualifies me to speak with authority about such an esoteric topic, it began on a camping trip. In 1977, I was a 22-year-old staff sergeant in the United States Air Force. My friend Toby and I went on a two-night camping trip to an Arkansas State Park known as Devil's Den. We planned the trip as a wilderness adventure. Instead of a wilderness adventure, we experienced an encounter with something unimaginable. We became unwilling participants to events that shaped our futures in ways we could never have imagined. It's caused me four decades of disturbed sleep. It cost my dear friend his life. After my enlistment, I made my profession in law first as an attorney in private practice, then as a civil servant. The question I'm most often asked is, why didn't you come forward sooner? Well, there are several reasons. I enjoyed the respect of my peers and a good reputation in the legal community. Had I come forward with my story 30 or even 10 years ago, it would not have been well received. It would have meant the end of my legal career. In certain professions, the subject of UFOs is taboo. To name just a few, the law, academia, medicine, and the commercial airline industry. Being overheard discussing the UFO topic in the lunchroom can carry negative consequences. My wife and I kept this topic to ourselves. We learned to avoid the subject because of the nightmares that always returned after the event was discussed horrific dreams that disturbed our sleep. Over time, we discovered these night terror terrors were punitive. If we avoided the subject matter, the nightmares would cease for a time. They never completely evaded. 
In later years, I would experience one or two a year. They persist to this day. I'm asked how I can recall these things with such clarity when they occurred so long ago. As soon as I learned I was being investigated by the USAF's Office of Special Investigations, or OSI, I prepared a written chronology of everything that happened. I had been threatened with a court-martial for trespass onto federal land, and it seemed wise to record all I could remember while it was fresh in my mind. I began keeping a written journal of my nightmares. It required some discipline, but I forced myself to record as much on paper as I could remember before the memories vanished. I found it helped me to better understand what happened. I learned to cope with the terror. On a beautiful June evening in 1977, the event that would become the incident at Devil's Den unfolded. We arrived in Devil's Den State Park in northwestern Arkansas in the mid-afternoon. We intentionally dodged the crowd campgrounds and sought somewhere remote, a place better suited to photographing wildlife, particularly eagles. We drove deep into the park, seeking out an isolated area on high ground. Our gravel road degraded into twin ruts in a dirt trail. Eventually, we crested the top of the small hill that opened onto a field. Before us was a small meadow of late-blooming wildflowers and knee-high grass. For a moment, we were awestruck by the scene. We nodded to one another and celebrated our good fortune. This was the place! The expanse of the high plateau was perfect for wildlife photography. We set up our campsite just as twilight enveloped us. The night was crystal clear and the stars were amazing. After a late dinner of some badly burned hot dogs, we settled in for an evening around the campfire. Close to 10 p.m., our conversation came to a lull. After a few moments, I noticed the usual forest sounds of crickets and tree frogs fell quiet. It sounds cliche, but it was true. The forest that had been alive with nature sounds earlier in the evening abruptly fell silent. Even the westerly breeze we enjoyed earlier was gone. In the flickering light of our campfire, I noticed the leaves on the trees were still. The best analogy I can offer is that we were no longer looking at forest scenery. We were looking at an image of the scenery. It was more akin to a three-dimensional hologram. The stillness unnerved me, but my friend Toby assured me our laughter and chatter had quieted the crickets and they'd soon return. I still felt unsettled. Looking to the west, Toby asked, Hey, were those lights there before? I turned to look. Just above the horizon sat a tight triangle of very bright stars. We watched them for a few minutes and argued about what they were. We first thought they were airplane lights, but quickly dismissed that notion because of the odd configuration and the fact they were stationary. They sat too high above the horizon to be lights from a roadway or a parking lot. For about 15 minutes, our debate continued. This was a single solid object. It tumbled at times, rotating end over end as it gained altitude. And then they moved. The three points turned in perfect unison. 
They rotated once as if on axis and began a slow ascent into the night sky. The movements of the three points of light were perfectly synchronized. This was a single solid object. It tumbled at times, rotating end over end as it gained altitude. The lights on each point of the triangle grew brighter and they expanded. The size was difficult to gauge, but it was big. Its somersaults were too perfect for movement without a purpose. The points stayed equidistant to one another as it sped up and continued to claw its way higher until it reached its ceiling. The area inside the triangle was solid black, much darker than surrounding night sky of dark blue. As it traveled over stars, they would blink out for a moment and then blink back on again as it moved past. Much like the phenomena during the Phoenix Lights. As it grew larger, it eventually devoured entire fields of stars. We watched as the triangle continued a steady trek toward our campsite. Incredibly, it continued to grow exponentially as it approached us. Oddly, we felt no fear. But soon our excitement ebbed. Our mood bordered on disinterest. I was wrestling with these conflicted emotions, but soon just relaxed. About the time it reached the highest point in the sky, I noticed all fear had left me. In its place was a warm sensation of calm bordering on sedation. It washed over me in waves and increased in intensity as the object drew closer. I asked my friend, Hey, Toby, are you scared? It was a minute or two before he replied, Uh, uh, man, I'm not scared. Are you scared? I muttered, Nope. Now it was over our heads and it was enormous. It was as if someone had cut a perfect triangle from a sky filled with a billion stars. Left was a void of darkness that ate up a fourth of the night sky. My disinterest in the thing puzzled me and it baffles me to this day. My friend was equally indifferent. Hardly a word was spoken between us. The crickets and tree frogs had not returned, but I no longer felt unnerved by their silence or the stillness in the forest. Picking up a flashlight, Toby said, I wonder what will happen if I try to signal it. I was too slow to snatch it from his hand. Holding it over his head, he flashed it three times. We waited to see if anything would happen. We didn't have long to wait. From the center of this thing came a beacon of light about the diameter of a softball. It came down as if someone had flipped a switch. The light was centered on our campfire, not much more than embers by now. The beam of light was almost solid like a high-power searchlight cutting through dense fog. But there was no fog, just a visible column of white light. We became more like casual observers. I was curious, but at the same time, I still felt detached. As quickly as it had appeared, the white light switched off. In its place came a laser-like beam of blue or violet light, no broader than a pencil. It darted quickly and danced about the campsite, as if scanning the area, scanning us. The beam struck my chest and head, but I felt nothing. 
I recall it struck Toby as well as it continued to flit around the campsite for a few minutes before unexpectedly switching off. We sat in silence for a time while this enormous thing was motionless over our heads. The silence was such that I was aware of my breathing and heartbeat. After 15 minutes, Toby broke the silence. He calmly announced, Show's over, or words to that effect. In unison, we dragged our air mattresses behind us and crawled into our tent. I dropped my air mattress and fell on top of it, fully dressed. I didn't bother to remove my boots. As I rolled over on my back, I recalled Toby was already snoring softly. My last thought was he'd been mistaken. The crickets and tree frogs did not return. This wasn't a dream or sleep paralysis, but it would soon become a nightmare. And that's where it ends on this page. <laughs> so how did he get the thing in his leg? I don't know. Shall we go to Terry's website and see if we can find out? Before I do, I would like to note that The Devil's Den, if you listen to Ozark Hears a Who, you've heard me mention that before because that's where somebody supposedly got some pictures of the Ozark Howler. Okay, so a quick pause, and I went to Terry Lovelace's website, and guess what? He doesn't detail anything else. It's the exact same post. You know what? Fuck that guy. I think he just wants you to uh, go to his events, and maybe he'll tell you how he thinks those implants got into his leg. I am terribly disappointed. I mean, what the fuck, right? I mean, that's just bullshit. Look him up if you like. Okay, okay, okay. I won't really leave you just hanging right there. Although I'm not even kidding. I know it's April Fool's that I'm recording this on, but I'm really not trying to fool you. Full disclosure, I went out and had a couple of drinks because I'm celebrating that I got my first COVID vaccine shot today. Boom! Just go out and do it, okay? I started to get a little headache right after the shot, but about an hour later, it tapered off and went away all by itself. It took five hours before my arm got a little sore and it's already going away. So, but I'm not drunk. Be more fun if I was, right? But as far as I can tell, looking up this Terry guy, he's not going to tell you exactly what happened to him at the Devil's Den because he wrote a book. So I guess you'll have to get the book. But I did find this, MysteriousUniverse.com. So as far as credentials go, though, Terry Lovelace has impeccable credentials. He was an assistant attorney general of the U.S. Territory of American Samoa, general counsel for the LBJ Tropical Medical Center there, president of the American Samoa Bar Association, a member of the Board of Medical Practice of the U.S. State of Vermont, an assistant attorney general for Vermont, bleh, up until to his retirement. I can speak. As far as reliable witnesses go, you can't really ask for much better. And apparently this one tale, though, that I was reading is not the only one that he has to tell. It actually begins back in 1973, when Lovelace joined the U.S. Air Force right after graduating high school 
and trained as a medic EMT. His post was at Whitman Air Force Base in the state of Missouri. Hey, where I'm from. Previously known as Sedalia Air Force Base. And he served variously as a B-2 bomber base and a missile base. It served. Uh, and home of the 351st Strategic Missile Wing, holding numerous Minuteman II nuclear arm ICBM silos spread out over uh, all over the rural area. Fuck, I'm just sorry. I'm reading this and going, holy shit. Did we live around all that? Damn. So, he was assigned as a base medic driving an ambulance. And at the time of his experience, he worked the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. along with a partner he calls Toby. Uh, This might be a pseudonym. I don't know why. In January of 1975, they were on their usual shift, started like any other night, with the two of them sitting outside the ambulance looking at the stars and waiting for a call while Toby, an amateur astronomer, excitedly explained the constellations and planets. The shifts were usually uneventful, whole evenings going by without anything happening, but this night turned out to be very eventful indeed and would change their lives forever. I thought that it changed his life forever in 1977, but what the fuck do I know, eh? Well, there's a picture of him here. I mean, he looks like a, you know, if you want to go by looks, like, yeah, I'd probably believe that guy. So at 2 a.m., they were roused out of their wistful daydreaming. Wouldn't it be night dreaming? by a call that a missile technician had fallen into one of the missile silos, 18 miles away across rows of endless soybean fields. Yeah. They tore off in response to the call and were surprised to arrive to find the place crawling with armed security police who told them to go no further. As Lovelace looked over the scene, wondering what all of the commotion was, he said that his attention was drawn to a matte black diamond-shaped object about the size of a van hovering over the missile silo. The strange object hung there for an estimated 15 minutes before it just shot off to the east from a dead stop to the speed of a bullet without accelerating. Hmm. He claims that after that, he and Toby were debriefed and told in no uncertain terms that they were not to talk about or disclose anything of what they had just witnessed. And the explanation they were given was that it was a type of experimental helicopter. And that was that. But both of them knew that what they had seen was no helicopter. But there was no further information, so they tried to put it out of their minds. Now, two years later, Lovelace and Toby were still working the same shift at Whitman Air Force Base. And one day, they decided to use some of their vacation leave to go camping. Oh, here we go. Are we going to get to it? Something neither of them had actually done before. So they went to the Devil's Den, had a high plateau, perfect for stargazing, as well as plentiful nature and wildlife. They drove there, went too deep into an off-limits nature preserve area away from the main camping area so they would have more peace and quiet and better scenery. So there we go. Here we go. 
On our first night, we were exhausted from a hike we took when we first arrived, a long driving setting up a campsite. About 9 p.m., Toby noticed three stars on the horizon. Perfect triangle. They were small at first and moved in perfect unison. It became obvious this was one solid object and not three independent lights orchestrated to move in perfect formation. We watched it ascend and grow closer and much larger until it was directly over the top of our campsite. Right? So far, it's like the other thing I read. We noticed as it passed through a starred field, it blotted them out until it had moved past. They would blink back on. Da-da-da. They noticed the forest was dead silent when an hour earlier it had been alive with the sounds. That's okay so far, so far, so far. This weirdness would continue at 3 a.m. the same evening when Lovelace claims to have woken. So I guess the next night, yeah. When Lovelace claims to have woken to a brilliant multicolor lights that lit up the entire tent and made the night seem like day. Since they were out in the middle of nowhere, well away from other campers, the only source of light they can think of was the strange object they had seen earlier. As the brilliant lights flickered and danced around them, the only thing protecting them was the tense thin sheet of fabric. Lovelace says that he overcame his building sense of unease in order to take a peek outside. And this is what he says of what he saw. I pushed Toby aside so we could both look outside toward the meadow. There was an enormous UFO as large as a five-story office building. It was a triangle with each leg being about a city block in length. It was 50 feet tall and sat stationary, 30 feet over the meadow floor. There was a noise, too. A low bass hum or drone. Not so much loud as it was powerful. It was like standing next to a running diesel train engine or a large industrial machine. We saw what I first took to be children walking around the meadow underneath the triangle. There was a column of white light, about 30 feet in diameter, shining down from the center of the triangle. We watched as these little people walked into the light and just dissolved, one by one, until they were gone. The hum stopped, and the corner lights all returned to brilliant white. The white cylinder from the middle stopped, and the thing rose about like a hot air balloon. It made a one-third rotation and continued its ascent, picking up speed until it was high in the sky and then gone. While we were apathetic earlier, now we were scared out of our wits. We abandoned our campsite and ran to the car and drove back to base. Now Lovelace claims that the incident left red, raw skin like a bad sunburn all over their bodies, including the soles of their feet, and that they were hospitalized at the base for two days with severe dehydration. During their time there, Lovelace claims that they were separately interrogated on several occasions by men identifying themselves as being from the Office of Special Investigations, OSI, and that his home and car were searched for the camera 
they were certain he had been carrying. And I neglected to mention that apparently he'd actually forgotten his camera. He was also ordered to have no further contact with his partner, Toby, who was reassigned to another base. And the whole incident would give him intense nightmares and have profound psychological effects on him for years. He explained some of this. Ever since 1977, I am uncomfortable being outside in open spaces, especially after dark. I sleep with a light or the television on. I keep a 38 by my bedside table and a high intensity flashlight. I am uncomfortable around elderly Asian women for some odd reason. I feel anxious at the mall when we walk past a window display with naked mannequins in the window. Something bad happened to us at Devil's Den. He also claims that he had physical effects as well, such as this, and then that's the spot on his leg that was x-rayed. Um, he's written a book about the account, Incident at Devil's Den, a true story by Terry Lovelace. And, and of course, you're left to wonder what, you, what to think about all of this. Uh, if you look at his credentials and, and his standing, you know, you, you might find it easy to believe him. But was there perhaps a misunderstanding or an effort at creating a mystery? If so, why would he do such a thing? And whatever the case may be, he continues to maintain that this is all true. And considering his standing as a seemingly credible witness, it leaves us to wonder. So there you go. I got the rest of the story. You're welcome. And fuck, I don't know. What's the Asian woman thing? That's actually kind of hated reading that part of it, uh, considering uh, today's headlines, if I'm sure you're familiar. But um, I, if I had to guess, I suppose the way he thought that those little people looked Oof. I don't want to judge him. I don't know. I don't know what that means because he's also afraid of naked mannequins. So I guess anything that reminds him of those creatures, that must be it, right? Um, if you want to look more into him, yeah, that's, that's Terry Lovelace. When I went to his website, though, it just, it just mentions events that you can go to. It doesn't, it doesn't actually... He doesn't actually have pages where he explains uh, stuff like this. So, yeah, I think he just wants you to read his book if you're going to get into that. Which, hey, you know, more power to him. So there you go. That's this uh, fucked up little mini pod while I swear that I'm not buzzed, but maybe I am. <laughs> and uh, I love you out there. And if you if you like anything at all that I do here, please go to Patreon dot com slash pinky swear press i i would really love to i got two people (laughs) i got two really cool people i would love to have more people to do some uh bonus content for you know come on over say hi and uh find me on twitter pod pinky or instagram pod uh pardon me pinky underscore pod underscore cast and I have pinkysquarepress.com. Also, send me your freaking stories, okay? Because then maybe I could read your stories instead of 
Googling, you know, random shit and fucking it up. So S right, S R O I T at pinkysquarepress.com. S right, pinkysquarepress.com. Send me your stories and I'll read those instead. <gasps> okay, I love you. Thanks for listening to this Pinky Pod. Poo-pow.